0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, eco-philosopher and author Joanna Macy talks about her life and work alongside social and environmental activists around the world. She was joined in conversation by eco-psychologist Renee Soule on April 8, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.
1: The intention tonight is to honor a life well-lived. We're going to be uh, in conversation. I'm still living it. A life <laughs> well-being lived, always being lived, 24 hours a day. <laughs> and um, really to know that our true work is a distillation of our lives. And to I'm hoping that as we hear Joanna's story, that we learn to honor our own lives. It's kind of like an acupuncture treatment for our own vitality, that we learn to um, honor our own experiences, both the difficult and the beautiful, and recognize them as being core to who we are and who, are, who we're becoming. So that's the intention. And um, I'd like to uh, ask you to recite the poem that um, inspired the title of her book, uh, Widening Circles. So we're going to start with that.
2: Well, those of you who know me will not be surprised that if I'm quoting a poem, it's likely to be by Reiner Maria Rilke. And um, actually, I'd like to proceed this particular poem, which was the first one I had read of this uh, great German lyric poet. Uh, it was back in 1955. I was uh, a young mother. Two of my children had not yet been born of the three, and who, and those two are here tonight, Uh, but so it's before you were born, Jack and Peggy, just a couple years, in Munich, but I had um, left the root tradition uh, that I had, that had been so important to me. a good, strong, liberal, Protestant, vital uh, tradition. And that God and that Jesus were so strong in my life. And then I was devoted to, that was my purpose, to serve that. And when I found uh, in college that as I studied theology, uh, it kind of shriveled (laughs) that experience. As I read church early church history, and I had to I was confronted with I had to look very directly at the um, dichotomies that the Christian faith at that point were helping me to see in our culture. There was interpretations the right and the wrong, the sane, the insane, the up, the down, the uh, sin, the blessing, the flesh and spirit, nature and human culture. And I uh, felt split down the middle and had to walk out of that. And so for the years in between, I felt that my spiritual vocation had failed that I'd lost it, and this is a terrible feeling—our so spiritual meaninglessness. And I thought, well, I'm free now to enjoy the world and smell the flowers, and I did. But there was this rootlessness and feeling of being at sea until I picked up on a snowy day in a bookstore near the university in Munich, uh, where I was um, taking classes a part-time, very desultory way. And here was a little book, Das Stundenbuch, The Book of Hours. By this time, I, my German was pretty sufficient. Maybe I'd been there a little longer. Maybe you were already born, Jack. Because <laughs> I could read the German. And then it fell open to the second poem. See, I had thought that the path would be a straight one to the Holy City. This is what I took from Pilgrim's Progress, moving straight toward the heavenly city. You knew you could see it on the hill and you were going to go for it. But I picked up this and I looked at it and I read it and I suddenly felt, oh, yes, yes there is a path that just wanders around. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich über die Dinge ziehen. Vielleicht den letzten will ich nicht vollbringen, aber versuchen will ich ihn. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, that primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? You know, I still don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, um... There are certain moments in a person's life that are key moments. And uh, there is one key moment in your life that stayed with me throughout the entire story of your life. Um, and it was the moment when you were, um, in the, ran, ran to the outhouse. Um, <laughs> she burst out of the car and, after escaping New York City and ran to the outhouse at her grandparents' farm. And I just wanted to read uh, a little bit of that. Um, and so I'm going to read this, and then notice what comes up for you when, you, when I read this, okay? So, as soon as you stop for a second and let it in, the simmering, seeding vitality barraged your senses. When I hurried to the outhouse after the long car trip, there it was right away, and very strong too, in the chorus of fi- flies zooming up from below as I lifted the lid, and in the higher whine from the wasp nest overhead, I had to try and not be nervous as I perched there over the smelly abyss, for I feared the wasps. And I also heard from Hardy, my brother, that escaped convicts, sometimes hid beneath the privies, (laughs) figuring they'd be undetected in pits of human excrement. So here it is, this terrifying young girl, right? Doing what she needs to do. I diverted myself by studying the yellowing pages from the old catalogs and Sunday supplements paper to the walls so she goes further when i pulled up my pants and went out under the sour cherry trees beside the privy the din of insect life continued all around me less menacing now as i listened it grew louder and wilder new parts of the orchestra clicked in with new buzzings and dronings of gnats bees june bugs of dragonflies and horseflies and hornets in the grasses around my feet and in the cherry branches overhead and in the elderberry bushes behind them and soon I could hear their chorus coming from farther away, from my grandfather's garden and the waist-high grasses on the other side, from the tomato field and the orchard beyond and the hayfields and the woods in the distance. The whole world was, was reverberated with their roar, an ocean of multitudes that could absorb you right into their immeasurable collective presence. Was this always going on? Or were we we just too busy to hear it, too self-enclosed to hear the world conspiring with itself? So that's really the magic of you, Joanna, is that you you've know, like in the midst of a terrifying experience, it opens her to the, it opens you to the great wonder of life buzzing around you. And somehow you've been able to transmit that to us as well. And I wanted you to speak more about that.
2: Well, it was a little scary because what my older brother Hardy told me was always true. (laughs) So I couldn't, I kept saying, well, he didn't really mean it because you're very vulnerable. (laughs) We never found an escaped convict hiding in the pits of the outhouse, but uh, that older brother was a voice of authority.
1: Yeah. But what's so interesting well, is that you were able to take this fear and to let it open you to your world, and that's instead of closing you down, you f- you you found solace in the interrelatedness of all things buzzing around you. You, you awakened to not being so self enclosed, whereas for most of us, fear can shut us down. And for you, it opened you. And I just that's that's one of the great contributions you've made.
2: Well see I grew up with a feeling that the world was okay even though I was scared a lot of the time we had a very had a painful childhood but um, Uwe, my grandfather uh, had a very strong conviction about this being uh, a world created out of God's love I left going to his church when I we came out of Manhattan that prison of us city and went up to his simple church in Buffalo and he would pound the pulpit but he didn't pound the pulpit to tell people what sinners they were he'd pound the pulpit to tell people how much God loved them (laughs) and he loved them so much he gave his only begotten son there and he's right there for you and this beautiful world has been created for you. And he would get kind of agitated about it. <laughs> but I drank it in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you've had a journey with anger. And, um, and a- again, in um, your father, there was also in his person both this rage and this kind of darkness. And also he taught you poetry. So there's something about your journey with your father that also, I'm wondering how that might relate to this capacity you have.
2: Yeah. Well, and then I read a lot. And mm-hmm. so the adventure stories um, always included uh, something that you are sc- scared to discover and then you find that you can. and. um mm-hmm. But yes, my father was terrifying in his angers and in his tyranny of us all. But I, for some reason, um, with my fear, I was the only one in the whole family that talked back to him. And then we had moments, because uh, poetry is, I can't really write poetry. I've written a couple of poems and But I am such, I make it worthwhile for all the poets. They've created me because they they need need to know someone that will love your poetry in order to write it. And there's Joanna. (laughs) Joanna will love your poems. Yeah. And, uh, but Papa. Yeah. Papa, when he'd quiet down or when he was in a good mood, sitting at the table, something to get going on poetry. We invented a game where he'd say a line and then the rest of us were to come up with another line from poetry that started with the same letter that his line ended on. This sounds rather uh, overwhelming, but it was a lot of fun. But he he and I were the only ones who could really play it. (laughs) My mother tried and the boys would... At any rate, so we met there. We met there. Poetry is becoming uh, like a saving appearance. Haven't you found in the last years in our culture the poetry slams and the people writing poetry and people showing up for poetry readings? I think it's because... It's the one, those words are not set in the old paradigm ways. They, they let you slip through into new perceptions, don't you think? Yeah. Well, they say the language of
1: the soul is in images. Yeah. So it's a way of communicating with that deeper part of ourselves. Um. <coughs> I was going to ask you to talk about resilience, but I'd rather ask you about, um, because in some ways it's taboo um, to talk about anger. And uh, in the terms of the work that we're here to do this weekend and for our world, anger, when it's tempered and mature and it turns into fierceness, it's very important. And um, I've often been a little nervous about your anger. And um, I'm just wondering about your own journey with anger and what you can teach us about...
2: Well, I'd like to say that uh, for those of you who've done uh, the despair and empowerment work, as it was first called, or the deep ecology work, as it was called after that, or the work that reconnects in these workshops, you will know that uh, anger is validated as a genuine response. That How are we registering when we open our eyes to what's happening in our world? Uh, grief is predominant. But not only there's outrage too, and there's fear, and there's overwhelm, and um, but anger has is viewed with a great suspicion as a sign of your immaturity, and um, and that's very useful to uh, the patriarchy. To have, especially in women or children, mm-hmm. to have used their, because without anger you cannot protest really, being stepped on, being canceled out, mm-hmm. being not seen and not heard. You have to raise your voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, You have to talk back. You have to try to be heard and be seen. And if you convey that that is a sinful, immature response and certainly very unladylike, um, that already puts you in chains. And I learned that not from my father so much as from my mother. She said, now, if you can't say something nice, just don't say anything at all. And I'm not the only one in the room who heard that, am I? mm -hmm, Yeah. But the, um, and I love seeing how uh, that fresh view of anger when I I came to the Buddha Dharma uh, among the Tibetan refugees in northwest India when I was there with my family and all the children had been born and we were all there. And I, we fell in love with and became involved with a community of Tibetan refugees, lamas and lay people from eastern Tibet. And uh, a good while later, because they stayed in our life, and even when we would go on and we are living in Africa or back in Washington or up through the years, I would go back, and uh, when they learned that I had gotten involved with the issue of nuclear waste, nuclear waste from the production of nuclear power and weapons, I was haunted by it, I was writing them about it, and the notion of guardianship, and so when I was visiting Next, Uh, They asked me to talk to the monastery. They'd established this beautiful community. And uh, in the process of that, they introduced me to a um, practice. They said they wanted me to have this practice. If I was going to face something as scary and terrifying in a long range way as uh, nuclear waste that I really had to have this practice and I said well you know I'll, I'll have someone else learn it because I'm not in Tibetan practice they knew that I was I said I'm doing Vipassana you know and <laughs> and so and I'm already 60 years old so it's too energetic for me I'll have someone else come And they said that's fine but you have to do it first They have that way of just sneaking in. And (laughs) so uh, this was a practice of a wrathful form of uh, the celestial bodhisattva of wisdom, Manjushri, And this wrathful form is the embodiment of anger. When you look at this... Tonkas are the scrolls. They're just, he's in flames with rolling eyes and fangs and draped in skulls and freshly cut heads and pythons (laughs) and he's trampling up. Woo! (laughs) And you just mm, identify with that. And because this deals with, you have to deal with wisdom that has gone wrong. And boy, has it gone wrong with our nuclear adventure. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming to the point. Oh, we're here Uh, with you. (laughs) So, uh, the uh, Kempo or um, te- monastery teacher was serving as translator. The yogi who was teaching me was showing me uh, the um, a beautiful uh, painted bronze statue, almost life size, of this Yamantaka. And he said, "And look at, and these rolling out, and this and the fangs." And he he just was pointing out all these. And, and his, from the waist down, his whole body is just a dagger to plant it in the ground. It will not retreat. And he says, oh, such anger. Oh, such great anger, straight from the heart of pure compassion. That says it. If you know what the anger is rooted in, there are times you have to use it, and you don't, if 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 you're f- feeling the suffering. I felt that this morning, listening to Democracy Now and hearing what those for-profit detention centers were doing to the Muslim refugees from Bangladesh, putting them in bag body bags and chaining them. Maybe you heard some. Anybody hear that? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, you don't. Which would you rather ask? Would you rather be ticked off and angry to hear that, or sit in absolute calm? This is one of the sentences that stood
1: out for me. Uh, one of your first anti-nuclear actions, uh, one of the activists said, you, said to you, "A revolutionary is unprepared without a kazoo." Oh,
2: <laughs> a kazoo. That's yes, right. And I guess I wanted to ask you, along with Jackie, anger, that was when we occupied Seabrook. And I was there the night before as one of the marshals before you marched in with your affinity group. And uh, that was Dave Albert, and he was from Harvard Graduate School, but he had out. He organized by giving people kazoos. I just, that there's something
1: about your joy, I guess I wanted to say, because that's also extremely evident in your life your joy of downhill skiing, your joy of whatever your effervescence took you, you followed that. that. That's also a big part of your journey. And uh, the activism, I think, in some ways, tickled your fancy in part because of, these, of that playful spirit.
2: Even as you were taking a stand, there's a lot of joy in your activism. Yes, it's, it's deadly to take yourself too seriously. <laughs> so if you're going to dismantle the political social system, uh, <laughs> do it in a playful
0: way. <laughs> <laughs> and might as
2: enjoy it.
1: Yeah. And it turns out that humor is also an antidote to shame. It's one of the best ones. And if we can bring some humor even to the darkest places, it helps loosen the knot of, of what happens when people get ashamed of pulling back or getting angry you know, in an angry and unhealthy way. So to bring the kazoos helps us all, because we're all in this together. Oh, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, um, in the nuclear activism that you did, you were questioning the activists themselves around this NIMBY approach, not in my backyard. And was I was when I was reading, I, I coined the little thing: "A, um, we are all in this together." So uh, what was it? AITC. Yes, it was. Uh, yes. Um, all in this. AITT. Together. All in this together. Oh. So that's sort of the counterpose to the NIMBY. And um, sounds like a free trade agreement. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't really like this, but it just was in my notes and. I just wanted to, the, all in this together, like you came upon this throughout your whole life, you had that sense that even when you were younger, when you realized everybody's
2: lonely or you had That's this. right. This that was a, a breakthrough moment. That was a breakthrough moment. Can I say anything yes, about it? Yes, please do. Because my mother made me go to dancing class at the plaza in New York. And I was in agonies for, you know, how it is. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what to say to boys and I didn't know how to look as if I were having a wonderful time if I wasn't and Your
1: girlfriend <laughs> your girlfriend did though, I remember she was very at ease with all of this. What? Your girlfriend that you went yes.
2: with. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But so anyway, I I read a story that changed it. Mm-hmm. And it was a story about a girl in New York, it was in the eighteen nineties or something, where she was wandering around a big reception in a mansion with potted palms, it was sort of like where we'd go to the Plaza's dan- deadly dancing class. And uh, uh, a man came up to her, a gentleman, very refined, and he said, I have a secret to tell you, because she was just feeling so miserable. And the secret that changed her life, and then changed me, when I was trying to be popular and couldn't figure out how, and if he even wanted to be, uh, was two words with an apostrophe. Everybody's lonely. I swallowed that like the wonderful medicine. And then I wasn't afraid of uh, what... The focus wasn't on making myself entertaining or acceptable. The focus was suddenly... someone else who's lonely too
1: I mean we all know that as uh, if we can take our focus off ourselves and into the, the larger world that's also been something that you've done over and over again but there are moments when you were needed to focus on yourself and I'm thinking of the moment when you felt you had lost your purpose when you were a mother in the suburbs and you just put your hand through the glass and and uh, that's another use of anger that maybe you looked self-destructive, but in some ways it saved your life. And, and when you really did come back to yourself and your own unique essence and that you always valued that and you took time for yourself and you fought for it. and I wanted you to say more about that.
2: Yeah. Uh, see, looking back over my life, I see so much of my life written, lived before Betty Friedan <laughs> and uh, The Feminine Mystique and where the where she spoke with a problem with no name, that there were uh, a generation of young women and young mothers who were unprepared for... Uh, as the Eisenhower years kind of held a f- this American dream, uh, as you could see from the old ads, of people sort of getting, dancing around their kitchens, getting excited about how they could get their husband's shirts clean. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, And being a college graduate, and I had just been working in Washington in a fascinating job. I was working very briefly for CIA, and it was very important for my growth, for my journey, to learn what our government is ready to do. It won't stop at anything. But then to be suddenly... uh, put in this suburb. It wasn't very long, but I thought that my life was over. Imagine thinking your life is over when you're 24. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's something important to remember about you that I find that you experienced World War II. You know, you experienced this vast span of history and... and, and very that, important. Yeah, that this is... Yeah. Yeah. <coughs>
2: Yeah, you had picked out, you were going to read something about uh, the blackouts Oh, in yes, New well, York. That's, that
1: was another, that was the post privy moment. The next yeah, I, was gonna talk. I want you to read that. Well, it's um, another one of those moments where, um, in typical Joanna
2: fashion... Um, so, see, yeah, I'm born in 29, so that would, in the uh, 41 to 45, when we were actively in the war, uh, I was in my teens, I was going from, what, 12 to... Sixteen,
1: fifteen. Yeah, so yeah, you were born in 1929, and, uh, and then the, during the Manhattan blackouts during World War II air raids, even in those dark times, you, that inspired a sense of global cohesiveness. And you said, I felt such a connection then across the planet. So there they are all with the blackened windows, right? You want to describe it, what the scene is like, and then I'll read what you wrote about it. Describe what it's like to have been in, a, in, a, in the air raids.
2: Oh, well, it was exciting. Because nobody took it seriously. I didn't, that that we'd be actually bombed. But if it were, that would be kind of interesting. It would be more interesting than my family life was as it was. Any change was welcome. I mean, maybe if we had to run to an airplane, you know, air raid shelter, it would sort of shake things up a little bit. (laughs) Make us nicer to each other. And so, but, uh, so it was very... I loved it, and then you could, it'd be so quiet, and you could hear the air raid wardens <clears throat> walking down, you know, on the sidewalk below, and it was so dark that we, d- we would lift, the, we had these black curtains and we'd pull them up so that we could just see the stars. Read. <laughs> I felt
1: such a connection then across the planet with innumerable others with sailors on their darkened ships dutch families in occupied lowlands with hunted french resistance fighters hiding hiding huddled over their shortwave radios that we seem to be breathing together in one vast night
2: so not only uh what i didn't put in that i don't know why because so I got so aware of... I was going to a French school, a lycée français, so I was among... I was the only American in the class, and the others were almost all Europeans, French-speaking, and... Uh, and... Um, so we were very aware of the, the, the fighting going on in Europe, I was, and... Uh, and the maquis, the... Resistance fighters and the resistance people in Holland, and but then in addition to that, uh, here comes the German again. My father had an an air um, shortwave radio, and he could pick up. And we had to keep very quiet about this because actually the people in the apartment house thought we were German sympathizers. But he would pick up the broadcast from Berlin, and every night at a certain time, there would be a drum beat. And then a beautiful song sung by the great German tenor Richard Tauber, Ich hatte eine Kamerade. I had a comrade. He was dear to me and stood at my side and he took the bill, bullet and fell at my feet. So this was song, this beautiful music, as, then they, as an introduction to reading the list of the names of the young uh, who had lost their lives that day. So, in the night, oh, that makes me think of another poem. Ah... I love the dark hours of my being. Yeah, the darkness includes everything. So in the darkness, the divisions disappear. And it's like we're all in it together. Even the people we're killing and who are trying to kill us, we're all in this drama, but trying to be still. That's what I was, all in this together the the connection of
1: knowing we're all in this together carries through your life often. And it, it's the great, it's the softening, you know, this in, incredibly intelligent mind you have. that can even remember everybody's name. <laughs> have you noticed? She remembers everybody's name in the workshops. And yet you have this ability to see that we're all in this together. And, that's the, and the train ride that you were in India, that, that when you woke up to our shared humanity, even as you were studying the Dharma from your the intensity of your mind
2: well that's why we love deep ecology isn't it yes. isn't that why you love it yes and eco psychology yes, because you extend and you it's an effort to move beyond that small encrusted encapsulated, skin encapsulated ego as alan watts said that we're we've been so cramped in that mm-hmm. in our terrible needs to compete and get a place in the sun and be right not wrong and
1: and you've and given to, oh. And you also, in the same way, what we say in eco-psychology is let the breakdown happen in me and not in the world. And you would give yourself to the breakdowns. I know they were difficult, but if you were miserable, you'd lay on the floor and be miserable, or you would really give yourself to those dark moments and not just shy them on. You'd you'd actually take them on and let them take you somewhere. And it often led you to your purpose. I mean, we had a conversation last night about purpose and There's something about how purpose is often born in these darker moments, the difficult times.
2: That's how life grows. Because as forms evolve, the old boundaries have to give way to let more in and more out so that they can. So we mustn't be afraid to be shattered. And I loved the teaching I found of a Polish psychiatrist, remember, Kazimierz Dabrowski.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I found that in a, he a systems thinker too, where he talked about positive disintegration. It's not so bad to break down. Well, that's It's why a good th- thing. <laughs> yeah. It can feel good, or it can let you grow where you've been confined. If you burst out of old boundaries, Yeah, that positive disintegration. We're in it as a culture, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's why I just love being here at CIIS because we are playing around. There's no timidity in this place about (laughs) thinking all kinds of ways and drawing on all kinds of traditions uh, to explore new apprehensions new ways of seeing. And the dark helps you to see. In the dark, the eye learns to see. Mm -hmm. That's what another poet said, Theodore Rethke. Mm
1: -hmm. So I'm wondering if I could ask you a somewhat taboo question. Well, I don't
2: know about that. You can always
1: say, no, I don't want to answer that. (laughs) And it's about love. So we've talked about anger and darkness and now love. And um, sometimes a lot of us get caught up in love relationships that drain our energy and um, take a lot of time. And I um, wasn't really able to sustain an open relationship because it took so much time and so much just emotional storm and drang, you know. (laughs) So I... um, I'm just wondering, how did you and Fran, I'm just, what do you, would you speak about love and how that can nourish our work for the world and not take us away from it? Sort of one-on-one human love.
2: I've been very lucky, because uh, I remember Fran getting a cri- birthday card. Fran is my husband. Uh He's not alive now in his in his body, but he's around. You better believe it. <laughs> I remember how he'd received a um, birthday card with from his daughter Peggy, and in it she took his name and looked up the meaning of the name, which meant a free man, Frank, and and um, and then said how pleased she was to be the daughter of a man who kept on changing and she could see how he changed through the years. That, So uh, what, was, <laughs> what was great was that we changed in the same direction. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so we were both curious about the world and we both had a, a passionate interest in uh, the affairs of the world. Uh, his was very focused on the Soviet Union, then the former Soviet Union his passion for the Russian people, but it was also, it was huge. It was, he uh, was a very gallant man. Uh, and thinking about him now, I've decided that this is my adjective of the week for Fran. It's gallant, <laughs> and, and uh, so uh, with uh, a, such a, a, a sturdy, relationship with each other we like to explore things that if we loved other people he didn't see that that would be in any way when we finally got around to being open about it with each other um, that that didn't wasn't a threat he said to uh but uh helped there was a kind of vitality but you don't go too far in that direction mm-hmm. because then you get preoccupied and right. crazy so but um, I can't believe I'm doing living without him, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I am, because he's been dead for seven years. Yeah. I'm still here, aren't I? Yeah. 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 just have to register that. But I've got help. My kids are around me. And I, f- I feel you know I feel him inside he loved me so much he wanted me to shine mm-hmm. he did mm-hmm. he and the people who came to our intensives, one of the things they came away was that they could see a strong capable, competent man supporting the, his, uh, the woman who was you know, in support of his wife. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, he was, that was a teaching in itself. Yeah. I think it would,
1: at, at his birthday party, or one of his birthday parties, you honored, he said, I'd like to
2: honor Fran's parents. Yeah. For. So if you're looking for a husband, <laughs> <laughs> what's really good is to get the f- fourth son (laughs) and by and by and even if they're disappointed that he's still a boy and they call him Francis (laughs) but um they he is so loved he didn't have a jealous bone in his body Mm -hmm. now that's the uh, kind of a uh, husband to have when you're leaving the patriarchy behind.
1: <laughs> yeah, the words you said is that his parents taught them that he was a lovable person. Yeah.
2: He never had a doubt about being lovable. Right. Isn't that so?
1: Yeah. We talked last night a little bit about collective and shared purpose and the importance of community. And I wanted, if you, if you would speak to the importance of being together and
2: shared purpose. What is happening to our world today is so, I don't know when, ever, in the journey of humankind, there's been a time when people have, it's clearly not happened before, that we are in a position to see that the whole life-bearing capacity of our world, we can see, is, is in question. Our ancestors, way back, they've gone through times of hunger, drought, battle, terrible hardships, epidemics, plagues, but never were they in a position to seriously be forced to entertained the probability of the cessation of life for complex life forms as we are asked to do today. Yeah. I don't think you can take this in alone. Yeah. And so that it it's just too much for the isolated psyche to take in, yeah. uh, by and large. And that even to, that's why in my family, uh, we've, Great moments have been when we have, with neighbors and others, done study action groups, where we study and report, and, and always there's fun games with it. And, but to learn it together, just as you're exploring, you find it here in, in this wonderful graduate school that you're taking things in together, and you're finding that the mind next to yours is helping you think and that by thinking together and perceiving together and registering this together, you're reaching a capacity to take it in and be with the reality that would not be there for you sitting alone in your closet. And that, I think, I don't think, I'm convinced, is the great adventure for us now. Mm -hmm. Under tremendous evolutionary pressures, we are being pushed, pressed, reshaped, refined, remolded (laughs) into a collective intelligence that is birthing and not one, one that it, that makes us the same. No, no, no. But rather, true integration, which diversifies us. Mm-hmm. You can't make any kind of a whole or a system if you're the same. Organization requires differentiation, and so in that sometimes excruciating, sometimes erotic and delightful, oh, but this. Uh, emerging into an articulated system out of the earth with the earth which is just the next step of evolution for heaven's sakes it's not that amazing but except that it's just amazing (laughs) to get you know stones turning into soil turning into nematodes i mean turning into this conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about the freedom and joy you have when being released into action and I know that a lot of us we know our despair work but sometimes the empowerment part can be a little stickier and um, not always you have this graceful joy of just taking action of starting the study groups of doing something and we talked a bit about this before this what is this this just natural release into action that we can tap into.
2: Yeah, yeah. For me, when I that that phrase came, when I was on a train, third class train from Delhi to Patan at the head head of Kangra Valley, going up to my Tibetan friends, and it was. Uh, uh, I thought I was going to die with the crush of the heat, and and I was alone, and uh, it was, and in that, I, with that, I was reading a, a religious text, actually it wasn't, it was a paragraph out of Houston Smith's chapter on Buddhism, and uh, I suddenly just, took a deep breath and found that myself had turned inside out. And what I'd feared, I f- what was deep inside me was now all over the, <laughs> was identified with the whole lurching, smelling, stinking, noisy railway carriage. And all those people were inside me. And th- it was ecstatic and, and without fear. And like, it felt like popcorn, uh, corn popping. And when I registered, I came down after a few hours when I came off of that, and I knew it couldn't last, but I knew it would change my life forever, and I'd keep getting back to it. But I thought, this is enough. I don't need anymore. I don't, certainly don't need trumpets and angels. I need to know I belong to my people. I'm with this earth, I'm so glad to be alive now. And that I, and with this homecoming to this exquisite, smelly, faulty, gorgeous, garbage-strewn world, uh, the phrase that came now, Without fear, without separation, I am released into action. It wasn't being on a mountaintop looking at the never ending sunset. It was being so deeply at home in this world that nothing would be foreign and that I could see each part of it as the face of my beloved.
0: You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu publicprograms.